Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's a place in the Nevada desert that has gained such notoriety. Its very name conjures up a mountain of conspiracy theories. There have been hundreds of movies, books, TV shows, and even video games all made about this mysterious government base that remains shrouded in secrecy to this day. A base that the CIA kept so secret, the U.S. government refused to admit it even existed until 2013. But despite all this secrecy, the base still managed to become so famous that the nearby towns built up their tourist economy around it. That place, of course is Area 51. But where did Area 51 come from? And what is the U.S. government doing there? By the time World War II was coming to a close, the United States had already set its sights on a different enemy, the Soviet Union. Although the Soviets had been instrumental in defeating Hitler's forces, the U.S. and the Soviets never became allies in the truest sense of the term. Americans had long been wary of Soviet communism and were fearful of stories about the tyrannical rule of Joseph Stalin. Likewise, the Soviets resented the United States both for their refusal to accept them as a legitimate part of the global community, and also because of how long it took them to enter World War II. By the time the war was over, that mutual mistrust developed into a full-blown Cold War. Part of the conflict between the U.S. and the Soviets began in the immediate aftermath of the war. The Nazis had left behind tons of secret research into advanced propulsion, weaponry, and much more. And everyone wanted to get their hands on it. Operation Paperclip was a top-secret United States intelligence program in which more than 1,600 Nazi scientists and engineers were brought to the U.S. to work for the American military, creating the next generation of advanced aircraft and weapons. At the same time, the Soviets gathered their own collection of former Nazi scientists to work on their own rocket program, as well as their growing nuclear arsenal. The constant threat of nuclear war always stood at the center of the growing animosity between the U.S. and the Soviets. Throughout the 1950s, both the U.S. and the Soviets were regularly testing bigger and bigger atomic bombs. The CIA focused all their attention on spying on the communists. To do so, there grew a need to develop new spy plane designs that could fly higher than Soviet radar could detect. And in order to build and test such planes, the U.S. government needed a remote facility far away from prying eyes. Many U.S. atomic tests were conducted in the empty deserts of the American Southwest. Land throughout the desert was cheap and easily annexed by the American military industry. So it only made sense for the U.S. intelligence community to begin setting up bases throughout the Great Empty as well. In 1942, the Indian Springs Air Force Auxiliary Field was constructed in an area of Nevada desert known as Groom Lake. Then in 1951, the Atomic Energy Commission began demonstrating their own interest in the region and began conducting nuclear tests near the same location. Then in November 1954, President Eisenhower gave the okay for the CIA to begin working with the Lockheed Corporation 
on a top-secret project known as Project Aquatone. This was a secret program to design a type of spy plane that could fly higher than any other aircraft had ever flown before. This was the U-2 spy plane, and it could ascend up to 70,000 feet in Earth's atmosphere. The project director, Richard Bissell, realized the U-2 couldn't be tested at Edwards Air Force Base because there was too much risk of the Soviets learning what they were up to. So Bissell instructed Lockheed to begin scouting the area surrounding Groom Lake to find a location that could be used as a top-secret testing facility. Groom Lake made the most sense since most of the area was already restricted due to the atomic tests going on. One of the U-2's top designers, Kelly Johnson, would later reveal the reconnaissance team zeroed in on a spot next to the dry lake that everyone thought would be an ideal landing strip. Although he worried that the location was so remote that they would have difficulty attracting workers. Kelly jokingly began referring to the location as Paradise Ranch. As to the name Area 51, that's a little harder to pin down. One unconfirmed story claims the name actually came from a numbering grid on an Atomic Energy Commission map. Although other researchers who have looked into this claim haven't been able to confirm it. In any case, over time, the name Area 51 stuck. And from 1955 to 2013, Area 51 became the most top-secret facility of its kind in the United States. It was so secret, in fact, that officially the U.S. government refused to admit the more than 4,800 square miles of restricted airspace even existed. Then on June 25, 2013, the CIA finally admitted the base was real. When they released a set of declassified notes from the Eisenhower administration detailing several formerly top-secret projects, that had been conducted at Area 51. But even before then, the base had already become a household name. The name Area 51 really became famous on May 15, 1989. That was when a Las Vegas TV station aired an interview with a shadowy figure who claimed to have not only worked at Area 51, but he also dropped the bombshell revelation that there was a lot more going on at the base than just testing stealth airplane technology. This man, whose name was later revealed to be Bob Lazar, made the shocking revelation that he had been hired by the U.S. government to work at Area 51 to reverse-engineer actual flying saucers. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from inside the Black Mailbox, and this is The Conspirators. According to the CIA, the rumors of there being extraterrestrial aircraft at Area 51 really began with the U-2 spy plane. This next-gen, top-secret aircraft looked like nothing any commercial pilot who caught a glimpse of it had ever seen before. Likewise, the SR-71 Blackbird was also tested at the top-secret base, and it too looked like something straight out of a science fiction movie. But Bob Lazar claims this is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Area 51's many secrets. On May 15, 1989, Lazar appeared on camera with his face shrouded in shadow. In the back of a Las Vegas news van, where he told a reporter named George Knapp that he had actually worked on reverse engineering alien technology at Area 51. Prior to this interview, the name Area 51 wasn't known publicly. Although some Las Vegas locals were somewhat aware there was a military base in the desert, 
Nothing about the mysterious base really caught the public's imagination until Lazar dropped his own bombshell confession. As for the man in question, Bob Lazar is a rather confounding individual, to say the least. So much of what we know about him is what he's admitted about himself. And as you'll hear, it's difficult to confirm much of what he said. He grew up in Coral Gables, Florida, and was thought to be exceptionally bright from an early age. He claims to have gone to Caltech and MIT, where he earned advanced degrees in physics and electronics technology. When Lazar was 23 years old, he went to work at the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory as a contractor for the Quirk Mayer Corporation, where he worked primarily in particle detection. It was there Lazar met Edward Teller, the co-creator of the nuclear bomb, and it was through Teller that Lazar would get the fateful referral that would lead him to work at Area 51. One day, while Lazar was working at Los Alamos, he arrived early to catch a lecture Teller was giving. At the time, Teller was reading a copy of the Los Alamos Monitor, which contained a page one article about one of Lazar's inventions, a jet car he built himself. Lazar used this opportunity as an icebreaker by pointing out that was his handiwork the article was talking about. The two men struck up a conversation and from there began a cordial friendship that would lead to bigger things for Lazar later on down the road. Six years later, Lazar's life was in turmoil. He was fired from Los Alamos, leaving him in dire financial straits. This caused added strain on Lazar's marriage and he eventually divorced his first wife and got remarried to a woman named Tracy Merck, who had worked as a clerk for the couple's photo processing business. Two days after Lazar tied the knot with Tracy, Bob's ex-wife Carol committed suicide by locking herself in a garage and suffocating from carbon monoxide. Lazar declared bankruptcy and began putting out feelers for anyone seeking someone with his advanced engineering background. He even reached out to his old friend Edward Teller, who is now heading President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars program. Then in 1988, Teller recommended Lazar for a job with the powerful defense contractor EG&G. Teller gave Lazar a telephone number to call. Lazar did so, and the person on the other end of the line told him to drive to McCarran Airport on a specific date in December and go to the EG&G building on property. It was there Lazar met a man named Dennis Mariani, who would go on to become Lazar's supervisor. This was unlike any job interview Lazar had ever experienced in his life. He soon learned he was actually overqualified for the position he applied for. Instead, Mariani suggested Lazar's talents might be more suited for a senior engineer position they had opened in a top-secret facility. This was initially to be done on a provisional basis, but if things worked out, Lazar would be hired on full-time. Lazar agreed, and a few nights later he received a call from Dennis to meet him at the airport. Mariani led Lazar to the south end of the airport through some secure gates. There, EG&G had their own private airstrip where they ran a series of unmarked passenger 737 jets that flew by the codename Janet. All commercial aircraft legally have to contain identifying numbers on their tail sections, but the only markings on these Janet airplanes were the long red stripes that ran along the length of each plane. Lazar got on board one of these jets and was flown the short commuter distance to the top secret base we know as Area 51. After Lazar got off the plane, he boarded a navy blue school bus with blacked out windows that drove him along a bumpy road to a large hill with massive doors built into the side. 
This was a facility who would later learn was codenamed S4. From there, Dennis Mariani led Lazar into a featureless room that only contained one thing. A large device about the size of an ATM. Dennis placed his hand on the machine, which turned out to be some sort of biometric hand scanner. There was a plate with a series of pins sticking out to separate Dennis's fingers. The scanner measured the lengths of the bones in Dennis's hand as a means of gaining entry to the restricted area that lay beyond. Dennis led Lazar down a long hallway to another room where a nurse conducted what started out as a routine physical exam that soon turned a little less routine. She checked Lazar's temperature, blood pressure, and examined his eyes. Then she performed an allergy test on him, which was just one of the many things that struck Lazar odd. He asked what the test was for. Exotic materials was what the nurse told him. After the tests were complete, Dennis led Lazar to a room with a desk that was stacked with folders he was told were related to the project he would be working on. Again, Lazar thought it was strange that nowhere on those folders did it mention the name EG&G, the company he was supposed to be working for. This, of course, led him to wonder who his real employer might be. It was what was inside one of those project folders that really set off Bob's alarm bells. When Lazar turned the page, everything he knew about the universe changed in an instant. That was when he learned he had been hired to work on reverse engineering a flying saucer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Fellas, have you started spring cleaning yet? The carpets need cleaning, the drapes need dusting, and your lawn needs mowing. Spring has sprung, and the global leaders in below-the-waist grooming have the best tools for cleaning aisle five in your pants. Time to clear out your winter bush and join the other 4 million men worldwide who trusted Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off free shipping with the code CONSPIRATORS. Look, guys, we're all getting older. And to quote Billy Crystal, we're losing hair in places we wish we didn't, and we've got hair growing wild in other places. Manscaped has the full package you need for spring cleaning this year. Their Performance Package 4.0 is the only tool you need to keep your boys looking and smelling like the fresh tulips your partner wants. To start off your spring cleaning, use the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer to get the most precise shave on your hedges. Did we mention it's waterproof as well? No need to worry about watering your grass with this tool. Equipped with an LED light so you know it'll be a major asset to the new shower routine. Clear your holes and smell the spring air with the Weed Whacker. This nose and ear hair trimmer provide proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tucks in those delicate holes. After clearing your nose, make sure to get rid of that foul ball smell with the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver. The Crop Preserver is an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. The Crop Reviver, spray-on toner for your balls. Keep your boys from sticking to your leg and leave them smelling like fresh flowers. Finish off your grooming routine with the Plow 2.0, the perfect razor for the finest shave on your face. Because if you're using your lawnmower 4.0 in your balls and your face, you're doing it wrong, boys. The start of spring is also marks the start of Testicular Cancer Awareness Month in April. Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to bring awareness to testicular cancer 
men's health, and early cancer detection. Manscaped is committed to raising awareness for the most common form of cancer in men aged 15 to 35 and giving support for fighters, survivors, and families impacted by testicular cancer as part of their We Say Balls initiative. Smell oh so fresh and so clean this spring, and check yourself before you wreck yourself. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code CONSPIRATORS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code CONSPIRATORS at manscaped.com. It's time to throw out your old hygiene habits and upgrade your life. And now, back to the show. Most of the file folders Bob Lazar looked through referenced something called Project Galileo. Lazar was astonished to see dozens of diagrams and other documents that revealed the U.S. government was secretly in possession of nine alien flying saucers in various states of repair. At first, Lazar thought this had to be some sort of joke, but if it was a practical joke, it was the most elaborate one Lazar had ever seen in his life. There were pages upon pages of data regarding these extraterrestrial vehicles. He realized the group of scientists must have been working on these ships for years. Even more disturbingly, as he read further on, Lazar came across a section of the classified report labeled Biology. And it was in here that he found two images of what appeared to be small alien creatures. One of them had its chest cavity exposed, as if it had been undergoing dissection. Later on, Lazar was introduced to Barry Castillo, a fellow scientist who had become his primary lab partner. Lazar and Castillo were assigned a lab and provided with two metallic artifacts that they were told were part of the Flying Saucer's propulsion system. It was up to them to figure out how to reverse engineer it. One of these devices resembled a metal trash can, while the other was shaped like half of a metal sphere about the size of a soccer ball. According to Barry Castillo, these were the ship's emitter and reactor, although how exactly they created the anti-gravity wave that allowed the flying saucer's propulsion was still a mystery. Of course, upon first seeing these objects, Bob's initial instinct was to reach out and touch them. But they both generated some sort of invisible force field that repelled him backwards. Lazar described it as being like trying to stick two of the same poles of a magnet together. Over time, he would come to learn that the alien's anti-gravity propulsion system ran on a then-still-unknown element codenamed LA-1000, also known as Element-115. At that point in history, this element had not yet been synthesized in a lab and didn't appear anywhere naturally on Earth. A few atoms of the element were first synthesized in a lab in 2003 and later given the name Muscovium. Lazar claimed the alien propulsion system ran on a stable isotope of E-115 which allowed it to generate a gravity wave around the ship strong enough to even bend the light around it. As a contractor, Lazar worked on an on-call basis at Area 51. He would receive a call when needed, then be flown out to the base to continue work. He was kept under a strict code of secrecy at all times. He couldn't even tell his wife what he was doing or where he was going at night. When he was on base, Lazar was constantly under the watchful eye of armed guards. Area 51 maintained a strict protocol of compartmentalization, meaning Lazar was not allowed to directly communicate in any way with any employees other than Barry Castillo, the armed guards, or his handler, Dennis. There was one occasion where he was being led down a hallway by two guards who instructed him to keep his eyes forward. But this just piqued Bob's curiosity, and he later swore he caught a glimpse out of the corner of his eye of one room 
through a window where he saw what appeared to be some sort of creature with long arms standing between two men wearing white coats. When Bob tried to get a better look, he was shoved roughly forward down the hall. Decades later, Lazar would speculate that what he saw was probably not an actual living alien, but rather some sort of mannequin being used to reference the size of the creatures. As time wore on, Bob's wife began to complain that she felt she was being watched constantly. She began spotting strange men watching their house from inside nondescript vehicles on the street. Bob tried calming her and telling her she was being paranoid, but secretly he was wondering if she was right. At the same time, Bob became enthralled with his work. Over time, though, he began to feel there was only so much that he and Castillo could figure out with what little they had to work with in the lab. He told Dennis if they wanted them to make any real progress, he was going to have to see some more of how the ship functioned. Dennis told him he'd take it under advisement. The next time Bob arrived at the base, Dennis told him he wouldn't be going to the lab that day. Instead, he told them they'd be working outside. Then, Dennis led Bob and Barry Castillo to a massive hangar that contained a functioning flying saucer. Lazar said the ship looked a lot like what the movies have shown us. A large, smooth, disc-shaped craft. The ship had no landing gear or wheels and no noticeable seams along its smooth exterior. It was resting directly on the floor of the hangar. Inside, there was a small cockpit, presumably for a pilot. But the seats inside that cockpit were far too small for any normal-sized human. There were also no noticeable switches or controls for the ship. As Bob soon learned, the ship was also fully functional. A technician activated the saucer's propulsion system and the ship began to emit a screeching hiss, as well as a faint blue glow from the lower half of the saucer as it slowly rose from the ground. For several minutes, Bob got to see the ship hover in the air. After that, Bob went home and didn't hear anything more from Dennis for several more weeks. By that point, he'd been working at Area 51 for a little over three months, and inside, he was growing more and more frustrated with all the secrecy surrounding his work. He was also becoming increasingly convinced his wife was correct and they were being watched. Bob began to notice dark-colored vehicles tailing him in the distance. And sometimes he would see strange men sitting inside parked cars who appeared to be watching him. One day, Bob actually tried phoning the police about the strangers sitting outside his house. Bob was shocked when he saw the cops pull up and get out to talk to the two men. Only the two officers immediately just got back in their car and drove away. No report was ever filed. Bob Lazar became more and more paranoid as the days wore on. He began carrying a gun around with him for protection. He kept trying to call Dennis to find out when he'd get to return to the base for more work. Only Dennis refused to take his calls. Eventually, Bob Lazar's frustrations got the best of him, and he made the first of several huge mistakes. That was when he decided to tell his wife and friends about what he'd been doing out there in the desert. He told his wife Tracy along with a friend named Gene Huff and another man named John Lear. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he just so happens to be the son of the man who invented the Lear jet, as well as a devoted ufologist. Tracy, Gene, and John were all a little skeptical of the wild story Bob told them, but he insisted that every word of it was true, and what's more, he could prove it. Bob knew that every Wednesday night right at 8 p.m. the base performed nighttime tests to their flying saucers. So Bob, his wife, and two friends all drove into the mountains near Groom Lake and sat on top of a ridge with some high-powered binoculars and a video camera. 
After it got dark, sure enough, a bright orange light was seen rising up from the base in the distance. This was obviously no traditional aircraft either. It made sharp turns and erratic maneuvers in the sky that were unlike that of any jet plane. They estimated the craft to be flying as fast as 700 miles per hour, which is much faster than the human body can endure. After that, they all went home with Bob's wife and friends now fully convinced he'd been telling the truth. Then in April 1989, Bob finally heard from Dennis again, just not in the way he'd been expecting. One day, Dennis appeared on Bob's doorstep and told him the two of them were going to take a little ride together, and Dennis wasn't taking no for an answer. He forced Bob into a car, and the two of them drove to an office park in Indian Springs. Bob was led into an office where Dennis told him he knew about his little nighttime excursion with his wife and friends. He demanded to know who Bob told and what he told them. He made Bob write down as much information as he could provide. Then he began demanding Bob admitted what he was really working for, as if he were a Russian spy or something. Dennis told Bob he was fired, and that if he or his friends ever went near Groom Lake again, they would all be charged with espionage. During the questioning, Bob was also given transcripts of his wife's telephone conversations, which revealed to him she had been having an affair. Eventually, Bob was sent home, but Bob remained worried for his life. One day when Bob was driving on the freeway, another car zoomed up close to him. Then Bob heard what he was certain was a gunshot right at the same moment one of his tires exploded. Bob narrowly avoided getting into a serious accident, but after that he remained certain his life was in danger. He decided the only course of action he had left was to blow the whistle on what he'd been doing in the hope that the CIA wouldn't dare murder him after that. He contacted Las Vegas Eyewitness News anchor George Knapp and told him his entire story. Knapp arranged for Bob to appear on camera with his face in shadow while he told his story. At first, Bob used a pseudonym for this interview. The name he chose was Dennis. The Eyewitness News interview received the highest ratings in the show's history, but even still it would take several more months and further media appearances for Bob Lazar's story to go global. In later interviews, Bob Lazar would drop the phony name and reveal his true identity to the world. In February 1990, a Japanese news crew flew to Las Vegas to interview Bob. They asked him to take them out to Tikaboo Mountain so that they could see some UFOs taking off from the base. Bob declined, but he did tell them when to go. And just as he said, just after sunset, they began seeing strange orange lights in the sky taking off from Area 51. The Japanese news crew paid Lazar $5,000 for a two-hour interview. Part of the requirements for the money was that he was supposed to fly to Japan for a 15-minute interview in the studio. But right before Bob was scheduled to depart, he called the station and told them he wouldn't be coming. He said federal agents were preventing him from leaving the country. Instead, Lazar appeared on the program via telephone. There's an old saying among skeptics that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And that's where the wheels begin to come off the bus on the story of Bob Lazar. The one major problem with Lazar's story is how little concrete evidence he can provide to corroborate anything he says. As Bob Lazar became a worldwide phenomenon, many people began scrutinizing every aspect of the man's life. And a lot of what he said just plain doesn't check out. George Knapp tried looking into Lazar's credentials and kept hitting brick walls. He claimed he worked at Los Alamos, but when Knapp reached out to the lab, he was informed no employee named Bob Lazar ever worked there. 
Then, when Knapp began looking into Lazar's claims, he went to Caltech and MIT. Once again, he was told there was no record of Lazar ever attending either school. Then in 1990, Lazar was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring, a charge that was later reduced to felony pandering. Of course, none of this sat well with George Knapp, an award-winning journalist who was feeling like he'd been duped by a massive con artist. There's even one theory that's been put forth by some people that Lazar is an actual government disinformation agent who was set up with a phony story to dissuade people from looking into the real top-secret work the CIA is up to at Area 51. At the same time, Bob Lazar still had a growing number of supporters who began to wonder if this was all part of some CIA smear campaign against him. Was it possible the agency managed to wipe out all records from Lazar's background? Knapp kept digging and managed to find a phone book from the Los Alamos labs from the time Bob would have worked there that contained the name Robert Lazar. And as Lazar himself put it, you don't get to work at Los Alamos straight out of high school. Knapp began asking around and also managed to find a few people from both Caltech and MIT who remembered seeing Lazar around campus during the years he claimed to have attended those schools. In 1993, Lazar sold the film rights to his life story to a movie studio. He also took two lie detector tests, both of which came back inconclusive. Although the test administrator came away convinced that whether Lazar was being truthful or not, he believed what he was saying was true. Lazar has continued to do interviews over the years and even wrote his own autobiography. One thing that appeared to be in favor of him telling the truth is that the details of his story have remained largely consistent over the years. Most liars have difficulty keeping the details of their story straight. In later years, Lazar and his wife, Joy, started a company selling chemicals and minerals. But in 2006, they were charged with violating the Hazardous Substances Act for shipping restricted materials across state lines. Then in 2017, Bob Lazar became the subject of a documentary by filmmaker Jeremy Corbell. At one point during the filming, Corbell took Lazar out into the woods and had what was supposed to have been a private conversation with just the two of them and a camera rolling. At that time, Corbell asked Lazar point-blank if, by chance, he'd ever had the opportunity to steal a sample of the elusive Element 115 from Area 51. Lazar played coy and never came out directly and said he had stolen a piece of the element. But he also didn't say he didn't steal it either. Perhaps it was just a coincidence, but the very next day, the FBI and local police raided Lazar's office. Officially, they claimed to be looking for records related to some chemicals used in a murder investigation. But Corbell believes they were looking for Element 115. To this day, there are a number of skeptics, including Donald Prothero and noted ufologist Stanton Freeman, who believe Lazar to be a complete fraud. The simple fact that none of his background checks out and that he doesn't have any solid evidence to back up his story are enough for many people to dismiss him as a hoaxer. But even though Bob Lazar doesn't have any real evidence to prove his claims about aliens in Area 51, it's still difficult to reconcile all the details he got right about things he shouldn't have known. For example, he knew that hiring at Area 51 was conducted by EG&G, even though this would have been at a time when the government didn't even acknowledge the base existed. He also knew there was a location on the Nellis Range known as S-4, even though the location has never appeared on any map and there's no other way he should have known this either. 
Lazar also told George Knapp about a federal agent named Mike Thigpen, who did background checks for government security clearance. It turns out Thigpen is a real federal agent, and he later admitted to knowing Bob Lazar. Likewise, Lazar really did know somehow about the Wednesday test flights at 8 p.m. every week over Papoose Lake. He also knew about Janet Airlines years before that became public knowledge as well. Then there's the hand scanner. In a way, it's a small detail, but it also does say something about Bob Lazar's credibility. Do you remember the biometric hand scanner with the long pins Lazar described being used at Area 51? It turns out a device that sounds exactly like that really exists. Only this never became public knowledge until 2017, when Jeremy Corbell uncovered photos of it. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Sarah for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons like Sarah get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including t-shirts, magnets signed note cards by me and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which I just uploaded as well. Check it out if you want to hear a story about one of the deadliest movie shoots in history. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to tell your friends and family about the conspirators and get them to subscribe and give us a great review on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on our social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Feel free to follow us along and drop us a line to let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.